Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling Jesus's blood supplanted the law. When I speak of the law, I am speaking of the Mosaic law, also known as the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, the Mosaic law, was the operating system that God used for a number of reasons, and it was in place, listen to me carefully, until Christ. And then Jesus made the Old Covenant, the Mosaic law, he made it obsolete. It wasn't just set on a shelf, and maybe we'll come back and get it someday. He made it obsolete. And we'll see that scripture in just a little bit. Tethered to the placenta of the Old Covenant were 613 Jewish laws. 613 do's and don'ts. Would you like a way to drive yourself right out of your stark raven mind? Try to set to memory 613 Jewish laws and what they're all about. It will take you years to put those all to memory. And by the time you study them that long, it will set up such a stronghold in your life, in your heart, that it will take literally the grace of God to tear that stronghold down. 613 Jewish laws, 613 do's and don'ts, 613 commandments. And here's the deal. Not a single one of those commandments had anything to do with faith the very operating currency of the new covenant. Under the old covenant, under the laws, all you had to do was obey. You didn't have to have any faith, just obey. There's not just a philosophical difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Friends, there's a cornerstone difference. In case you missed it, the old covenant required no faith. The new covenant is faith alone. Meditate on that for a second. No faith, faith alone. That's a big difference. That's why when we use scriptures like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where it says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Did you hear what the Apostle Paul said? He said, for by grace are you saved through faith, plus nothing. Faith. And you know, the Apostle Paul, probably in his sarcasm, thought, man, I'm going to write that, but I've got to make sure they understand you can't contribute here. So right after he says, for by grace are you saved through faith, he says, in that not of yourselves. In other words, what he's saying is there is nothing you can do to contribute toward this salvation, toward this gift that God has given you. Nothing that you can do in the flesh, nothing you can do. And then we use the scripture so often found in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul said it a different way there when he said, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Did you notice he didn't add anything else? Listen, we can learn something from this. If there were other things I needed to know, he would have put them in there. For by grace are you saved through faith, comma, reading your Bible, comma, going to church, comma, tithing, comma. He would have put them in there, but he didn't. He said, it is not anything you can do 
to contribute toward this. No faith, faith alone. I think the songwriter got it right when he wrote, I have journeyed through the long dark night out on the open sea by faith alone, sight unknown, and yet his eyes were watching me. He said the anchor holds. Though the ship is battered, the anchor holds. Though the sails are torn, I have fallen on my knees as I face the raging seas, but the anchor holds in spite of the storm. Do you know that song was originally written by a pastor in 1992 area when he went through one of the most difficult years of his life. But when he lost his third child to stillborn, he said it was in that time that he got the revelation of faith and grace that God made available in times when we are battered, when times our sails feel torn. He said, it's then that I fall on my knees as I face the raging seas by faith that my Father loves me and that my Father is for me. So you see the structural difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the reason I so often speak about this is because people don't understand it. That's why they keep asking questions like, what is the one sin that I can commit, that I can undo all of this? I tell them, listen, are you a believer in Christ? Yeah, I'm a believer in Christ. Then there is no sin that you can commit, okay? The only sin is to die in your sin without Christ. That is the unpardonable sin because on the other side of the grave, you don't have opportunity to receive Christ. The body of Christ at large is told to hold on to the placenta of the old covenant because there may be a day that you need it. Sunday after Sunday and sermon after sermon, it's almost like believers receive step-by-step -step instruction on how to reattach the law to the placenta. Let me share something with you. I learned this lesson about 30 years ago. I learned it when I was taking childbirth classes just in front of my firstborn. One of the things I learned is this. Let's say my hand is the placenta, okay? That placenta attaches to the uterine wall in the womb. And coming off of that placenta is an umbilical cord that attaches to the baby. And through that placenta, everything that baby needs is supplied. Oxygen, nutrition, and all the waste is carried away through that one cord. And when it comes time for that baby to be born, that birthing canal will begin to contract and that baby will eventually come forth bright and shining and beautiful. But here's the thing I've learned is the placenta always follows out the new creation. The baby we keep, the placenta is discarded. It has no further use. A woman's body typically will expel the placenta within 30 minutes of delivery. If that placenta does not come out within 30 minutes, it is referred to as a retained placenta. And if that placenta is retained and left in the womb, it can cause serious complications for the mother, including infection or excessive 
blood loss. So you want it to come out. And as I was thinking about this, I thought the placenta or the old covenant, which at one time nourished the 613 Jewish laws. And how did it do it? It did it through the umbilical cord of performance. It did it through the umbilical cord of do's and don'ts. But that old covenant, that placenta has been discarded. It has been supplanted by Jesus's blood for every new creation. Amen. What I want you to see through the message today are these truths. The old covenant has been displaced. It has been removed from its hinges. It has been expunged, wiped out. It has been made obsolete. It has been supplanted by Jesus's blood. Now, is there a problem with Mr. Law? No. Mr. Law is, the Bible says, perfect and holy and good and righteous. That's who Mr. Law is, okay? Is Mr. Law still here? Yes, in a sense, but not to put people under the old covenant. The law is not here to take us back to the old covenant. Why? Because the old covenant was made obsolete. He serves a purpose, but that's not it. And Mr. Law is not in place to convict believers. Hear me closely now. Convict believers of their sin or to put us under condemnation and shame. That is not his function. His sole purpose is to bring unbelievers to Christ. The Apostle Paul said, I would not even have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So he realized the purpose of the law. It is to bring people to Christ. And after that, he has done his job. How many of you know what a blood glucose monitor is? If you buy that kit, it will come with a monitor, which tells you what your blood sugar levels are. If it's too high, it's a bad thing. If it's too low, it's a bad thing. If it's too high, you take injections, or if it's too low, you eat something. It also comes with these little strips that you plug in the bottom of them, and that's where the blood goes on. Oh, but it comes with one other thing, my friends, those pokers. <laughs> See, they're not called pokers, they're called lancets. It looks like a giant thumbtack. When, when you put that in the little machine and you pull it back and you pop it on your finger, all of a sudden, man, it gets red in that one little spot. And you start squeezing it like a crazy man, getting that to form up. You stick it on that little test strip. And then that monitor begins to read to tell you what's going on. Listen to me carefully. The sole purpose of the lancet is to bring forth the blood. That is its only job to bring forth the blood. The lancet cannot heal a diabetic condition. It's merely the forerunner in the process of letting you know you may have a problem. The purpose of the law was to manifest the knowledge of sin in an unbeliever's life. Not a believer, but in an unbeliever's life, and then introduce them to the blood of Jesus, whereby their sins are taken away. Do you see that picture? Do you see sometimes we give certain things too much ground, we give them too much credit, we give them too much space when they say, no, this is my only function. 
This is all I do. All my eggs are in one basket. And that is the purpose of the law, is to bring people to Christ. It's like a person running in a relay race and they hand off the baton to somebody. Then that person drops out of the race. They don't keep running with that person. Their only job was to run, hand off, and then drop out. And that is exactly what the law does. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, we see this truth. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now that scripture, I would encourage you to memorize. That Christ is the end of the law. How? For righteousness or because of righteousness, or for the sake of righteousness, Christ became the end of the law so that his righteousness could be transferred to us. And he says, who gets this righteousness? He says, to everyone who believes. That's all you have to do. Remember, I said faith. The word faith and belief are interchangeable words. Trust, believe, faith. They're all that same Greek word, pistis. It means to believe in something, to trust in something, to put your faith in. That's why when the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth, that word believeth means trust. It means to put your faith in. It doesn't just mean mental assent. It means I am putting my faith in this man called Jesus Christ. I'm putting my faith in him. Even as much as the lancet does not heal our diabetic condition, so it is with the law. The law cannot heal someone's sinful condition. It simply brings a person to Jesus and Jesus is the one who heals them. Whether we're talking about in the spirit realm or we're talking about in the natural realm or whatever it may be, emotional. Jesus is the healer. Now, the word supplanted refers to something or someone that has been displaced, removed, or unseated. You have unseated someone, you have supplanted them. You have removed them, you have supplanted them. You have displaced them, you have supplanted them. When we have a change in presidents, one president supplants the other. One president unseats the other one. One president removes the other one. In October of 1792, there was a giant cornerstone laid deep in the earth at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, D.C. And it was on that cornerstone that they built the White House. And it's still standing. 1792, President Washington was the president at the time. And for eight years, that massive building was under construction. And when they were done, it was opulent. Eight years, that means it was not finished until the year 1800. It has been sitting finished since 1800. President Washington was the person who oversaw this construction project. So he would have walked those grounds on many occasions. He would have made suggestions of things he wanted done and things he wanted to see in this building. And they would have listened to him. But do you know that President Washington was the only president that never slept the night in the White House, but every single president since then has made the White House their home. His tenure was from 1789 to 1797. There's the eight years. And then President Washington, listen to me, President Washington died on December 14th 
of 1799. He was so close. December 14th of 1799. But it would be John Adams and his wife Abigail that would be the first ones to lay their head in the White House. Many believers feel like they're constantly under a construction project, never reaching the revelation that Jesus finished the work. The ongoing change that's taking place inside of you right now is really just the changing of the decor. It's what's taking place in our soul. Our spirit is a finished work. <laughs> so what's happening right now is as we are being transformed, the Bible talks about our minds being transformed. What is happening? Every president that comes in the White House goes, you know what? I want different paint. I want different colored curtains. I want this and that. All they're doing is changing the decor. They're not changing the cornerstone. And so that's what's happening in our lives right now. We're just being transformed. Moment by moment, word by word, truth by truth, revelation by revelation, we are being constantly transformed by the renewing of our mind. And it's in a good sense, that's for sure. The ongoing change that has taken place is in our souls. It is simply the decor, not the cornerstone of the building. The chief cornerstone has been laid once for all, and our hearts cry, thank you, Jesus. Listen to me now. I don't even claim, I guess, to know a lot about the White House. But as I thought about this, I thought there is one thing I do know. There has never been a time in history when two presidents have lived in the White House at the same time. That would be as potentially harmful as leaving the placenta in the womb. It's going to cause conflict because it's hard to find agreement, especially that far up the ladder. It would be difficult. One president always unseats the other. He always replaces the other. There is no overlap. You don't stay an extra week and then I take over. No. When the new president takes office, the former president loses his authority. He loses his voice in that building. The day before he had all the authority in the world, the very next day he has no authority for the country. And if you understand that this is what happened when we had the old covenant, the old covenant had a voice, it had an authority. But when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, it changed everything. It unseated the old covenant. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, we see this truth. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Now, was the priesthood changed? Ask yourself that question. We're no longer under Levitical priesthood. Jesus came and he became our high priest once for all. And the Bible says he sat down at the right hand of the father, signifying a finished work. There'll be nobody coming after him. He finished it there. The priesthood has been changed. And what changed with it, according to that scripture, is the laws changed with it too. What was the law under the old covenant? Obedience for blessing. No faith. What is the law under the new covenant? Love, blessing by faith alone, apart from my obedience. Now, I always have to be careful when I say that because I don't ever want to encourage anybody to be disobedient. 
But the truth of the matter is, the more this grace message, the more this revelation of grace grabs a hold of your heart, you'll find you're not looking for a way to go out and do crazy things. You're looking for ways to honor your papa. You're looking for ways to cherish the time with him. Our spiritual blessing in Christ is not based on our obedience. It's based on faith. And faith is what causes us. It's our helper to be obedient. The former president that once had the rule, he could get up in the middle of the night and he could roam the halls, those stately halls. He could go look at all the fancy artwork if he wanted to. He had the nuclear codes in his mind. He would sit down into briefings and had access to all this vital information. But all of that was stripped away. All of that was taken away with Christ. When Christ came, he unseated the authority that the old covenant contained. And so it is with the covenants, the new covenant supplanted the old covenant with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I love this because the writer begs the question in James chapter 3 and verse 11. I love this scripture. And I was thinking about this, meditating on this scripture last night, and then a word picture began to develop in my heart. James chapter 3, verse 11. It says, can both fresh water and bitter water flow from the same spring? And think about it for a second. If you have really bitter water, we know what bitter is. Just give a little kid a lime one time, and you'll see the expression of bitter. Do you know the difference between bitter and sweet? Oh yeah, we know the difference, don't we? And he says, can bitter water and fresh water flow from the same spring? In other words, he's asking the question, can the old covenant and the new covenant flow from the same spring? Of course not. And the word picture that the Lord gave me last night, imagine there's a river in front of you and there's two springs that are feeding this river. And this one is full of blue paint and this one is full of yellow paint. When they flow together, they'll be neither. Because blue and yellow together make green. And when you take bitter and fresh and you bring it together, you don't have bitter anymore. You don't really have fresh. You have something that's in between, some sort of mixture, some sort of concoction that's probably still not worth drinking. I'm not going to cohabitate with the law under the new covenant, under the new creation. So the answer is unequivocally no, they do not flow from the same spring. Jesus is the day spring of life, and he is the cornerstone upon which the new covenant rests. Now, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. Two groups, not the old covenant and the new covenant. That's not the groups. He's talking about the Jew and the Gentile. He said, I've made those two groups. I've given them equal ability, equal rights. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one. I love this and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Because back then the Jews had a wall that they would put up that separated Gentiles from the Jews. There was a wall between them. And he said, you know what? I'm going to take this down. I don't want my people segregated. I want my people one as we are one. And it says, so he destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. That means the Jews were under the old covenant. The Gentiles were not under the Mosaic law. And I love this. He says, having abolished. Now there's a word we don't see too often. 
And I guarantee if you look up that word abolish, if you go and Google that word abolish, the first thing that will come up is slavery because we always tie that word abolish to slavery. And that's exactly what we were. We were slaves at one time. And he says, I have abolished this in the flesh. He said, the law with its commandments and regulations. So he finally gets in this scripture here down to the culprit why this was done. It was the law and the commandments that was causing the division. Even though we technically have abolished slavery in the United States of America, there is still people that are living in slavery. Slavery still exists. It has not disappeared, and it has not disappeared in the church. Now, you understand when I say that, I'm not talking about slavery in the sense that we all know it, but I'm talking anything that we allow to be our master, we become a slave to. And in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul said these words. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, who is he talking to? He's talking to believers. But he's talking to believers who are tempted to go back to the law. Why? Because people come in and they come in with a sack full of placentas and say, you're going to need one of these. That's what's going on. He said, don't let that happen. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by yoke of slavery. And then he says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. What is he saying? He's saying if you follow the littlest letter of the law, circumcision, you must be baptized, whatever it may be. But if you put someone under the law that says, yes, you have to do this, this, and this, what you do is you put yourself back under a yoke of slavery, and you're not going to walk in the freedom that Pastor Steve was talking about. And then he says, and again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You know the old saying, a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If we start following even those little subtle things, kind of like it reminds me of Satan in the garden with Adam and Eve. Now, did God really say that you couldn't eat from this tree? It's those subtle little things. And that's why it's not so important to know the 613 Jewish laws so you don't break them, but it's, it's important to know the heart of Christ. It's faith plus nothing equals everything with him. I'm not saying we don't all have things to do. We have things to do out here. We have people to win to Christ. As you can tell, I brag about it all the time. We have people to tell our story to. We have people to help get the shackles off of them, even believers, get them walking in freedom. He said, but I tell you, if you let yourself become circumcised, he said, you are obligated to obey the whole law. In other words, if you were circumcised for that reason, because it is the law of Moses, he says, then what you're doing is you've already started down a slippery slope. He says then in verse four, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now, what he's saying here, he's not saying you've lost your salvation. When you fall from grace, you don't lose your salvation. Grace is much higher than the law, friends. Infinitely higher than the law. The law is a low standard compared to grace. Why? Because Jesus is the epitome of grace. 
And he says, when you are seated with him on that platform of grace next to the heavenly father, and you want to fall back into Moses's lap, he said, all you've done is you've fallen from grace. You haven't lost your salvation, but you might lose your mind. Ephesians chapter 2, let's bring 14 in again, and then through 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, having abolished in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have, look at that word, access. Through him, we both have access. The Jew and the Gentile, like we all have access to the Father by one spirit. We have access to the Father by one spirit. When I looked at that word access, the Greek word for it is prasagoge, prasagoge. And prasagoge is broken into two words, prasago and gay. Prasago means to approach and gay means the manner of life. So when he's talking about us having access to the Father by one spirit, he's saying you can approach the Father in a manner of life. Life, a living testimony, not dead. You can approach the Father with confidence. You can approach him with boldness. You can approach him as though you're alive. There's sometimes there's people that you talk to, you can't figure out, are you still alive? Because you have literally no enthusiasm in you whatsoever. I'm telling you, I'm enthusiastic because I'm alive in Christ. I know what he's done in my heart. I understand this grace. I understand his love for me. And so prosagoke is at work in my life. And I felt the Lord say, as believers, we are to approach the manner of life through the new covenant lens of grace because Jesus has given us access to the Father by, listen to me, one spirit. Notice he didn't say by 10 commandments. No, one spirit. Notice he didn't say 613 Jewish laws. No, he gave us access to the Father by one spirit. Wow. How did he do that? He did that by faith. The very faith he gave us, he says, you can access my Father by faith. What a deal. <laughs> That's a deal. You can come to my Father by faith. You can't even brag about your faith. You got it from him. He's measured us the measure of faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus's blood. Faith in Jesus's finished work. Faith. In fact, this word prasagoge is only used three times in the Bible. Just three times. Remember, it comes from the word access. And the first time it's used is in Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2, when it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, and we have access into this grace. Look at that. That's the same word, prosagoge. It means we have a manner of life that we can come to the Father. And what does he tie it to? He ties it to faith, even in this scripture. 
prasagoge. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Oh, it's a cornerstone that will last. It's a cornerstone that will hold up, friends. How did the new covenant come into power, friends? I'm going to tell you, it was by Jesus' blood. And Jesus prophesied about that to his disciples in the upper room shortly before his crucifixion. As he was serving the evening communion, he also served a word into their hearts. We find it in Luke chapter 22 and verse 20. It says, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, and this is what Jesus said. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you actually think that the disciples understood what Jesus was saying when he said, this is the new covenant in my blood? Do you really think they understood that? They had nothing to attach that to. See, you can't understand stuff you don't have a reference to attach to. Absolutely not. They didn't have a clue. You see, when the disciples looked into the cup, all they saw was the fruit of the vine. But when Jesus looked into the cup, he saw the cross. He saw the blood. He saw the cross in the cup. Jesus foresaw the very instrument that he would hang on as his father would cut covenant with his dearly beloved son. Friends, it was on the cross that Jesus exchanged our bitter water for sweet water. It was on the cross that he did that. We see a type and shadow, and I love types and shadows. We see a type and shadow of this exchange, bitter water for sweet water, in Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 25. It says this, Then Moses led the people of Israel on from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the wilderness of Shur, and were there for three days without water. And then arriving at Marah, they couldn't drink the water because it was bitter. And that is why the place is called Mara, meaning bitter. Then the people turned against Moses. Must we die of thirst, they demanded. Moses pleaded with the Lord to help them, and the Lord showed him a tree to throw in the water, and the water became sweet. Let me ask you a question here. What made the difference between the bitter water and the sweet water? Friends, it was the tree. And what made the difference between the bitterness of the old covenant and the sweetness of the new covenant? It was the tree. It was the very cross of Christ. All that was is a type and shadow thousands of years later that Christ would say, I'll take that bitterness away from you, whatever it may be, but I'll take it away through the cross. It was on the cross that Jesus' holiness supplanted our unholiness. It was on the cross that Jesus' righteousness supplanted our filthy rags. It was on the cross that Jesus' innocence supplanted our guilt and shame. It was on the cross that Jesus' life supplanted our death sentence. It was on the cross that Jesus' light supplanted our darkness. Friends, it was on the cross that his fullness supplanted our emptiness. It was on the cross that Jesus's grace supplanted our sin. It was on the cross that Jesus's victory supplanted our defeat. 
It was on the cross, friends, that Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice supplanted our need for daily dying. It was on the cross that his one-time sacrifice supplanted our need for annual and daily sacrifices. And it was on the cross that Jesus' blood supplanted the law. Selah, pause and think about that for a second. Makes me excited when I see that kind of stuff. And I am not under that old Mosaic law. Friends, my memory is not that sharp. I wouldn't want to set myself to memorize 613 anythings unless it's just flat out pure gospel scripture. It's just too much work. And it was for them too. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted or should we say founded on better promises for if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second in other words what was jesus saying he's saying if the placenta that once nourished the law would have been sufficient then the umbilical cord would have never been severed so I'm sorry, man, I just I have to draw word pictures in my own heart, and hopefully I can paint these in yours as well. But he said, listen, if that would have been sufficient, we would have left that connected to the baby. But it wasn't sufficient. It required Christ's blood. If the cornerstone of the law had not disintegrated, then there would have been no need for a better cornerstone. In fact, he's called the chief cornerstone. We sang about the cornerstone in one of our songs this morning. But the Bible never declared that the law was sufficient to make a man righteous. In fact, it declares just the opposite. In Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, here's this truth. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. For by the works of the law, look at these words, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Are you a human being? <laughs> He's telling us right there. Paul is saying, listen, by the works of the law, by obeying these commandments, he said, there is no flesh that is justified by doing that. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what the law does, is it makes you aware of your sinful condition. Once we come to Christ, we are no longer sinners. Valerie preached about that last week and did a great job. She said, we are not sinner and saint. I don't know what you'd call one of those, but uh, we're not both of them. We're one or the other. And if we put our faith in Christ, then we are his son. We are his daughter. We are a saint in his eyes. Hebrews chapter eight, verses six and seven again. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, let's skip up just a couple of verses into verse 13. And he says this, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Friends, let me tell you something. If there was one scripture I believe that's been hidden from the body of Christ, it's that scripture right there. Most people, if you asked them about this scripture right here, they wouldn't even know it existed. I think it's very plain. He says, in speaking of the new covenant, 
We know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the new covenant. What's the new covenant by? By faith. He made the first one. What is the first one? It's the Mosaic law. It's the covenant from Mount Sinai. And he says, he made the first one obsolete. I love it. It's not shelved. It's been made obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and grown old is ready to vanish away, or it's ready to be displaced. It's ready to be unseated. It's ready to be supplanted. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 again. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Again, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. When I read those two scriptures there, my initial takeaway is that the law has a voice. You say, how do you know the law has a voice? Because in verse 19, it clearly tells us that the law says and the law speaks. You have to have a voice to speak and to say something. But the question is, who is the law speaking to? We know it has a voice. Who is the law speaking to? The answer is simply those that have put themselves under the law. They look to the law to speak to them, whether it's through print or through preachers or whatever it may be. They are looking for someone to feed them with the law. Are you and I under the law? Absolutely not. Are we under the old Mosaic covenant? Absolutely not. Why? It has been made obsolete. What made it obsolete? Jesus' blood and faith in Christ, faith in his finished work. Faith plus nothing made me right in his eyes. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Well, friends, I'm going to tell you something. If I had one of those little poppers they, they pull the string on on New Year's Eve, I'd just probably pop one of those right about now. I just would pop. Watch all that thing just go everywhere, you know, and just keep popping those things. Because what did he say? For sin shall no longer be your master. I'm not a slave to sin. I'm not a slave to the old covenant because you are not under the law, but under grace. I don't know how we can make it more plain. You are not under the law. In other words, those 613 Jewish laws to be right in God's eyes. No, you are not under that law. What are you under? Well, it's right there. You are under grace. Praise his name. So what's the benefit of knowing these truths? What's my benefit? What's my takeaway from this? Well, the first one is rest. You can't rest if you feel like you're always under the old covenant because you're busy memorizing 613 laws. You're busy working those things out. You're busy with condemnation. You're trying to get rid of your ball and chain all the time. The first benefit is rest. You get to rest. The second benefit is just freedom. It's just absolute freedom. You ever notice when you're in tense situations, you're around tense people, you almost start breathing differently for almost concern that you might disturb their air just by breathing normal. That's what it happens when you put yourself under laws. You're always worried and concerned. Am I doing this right? I've seen many times over the years, wives do that to their husbands. They're just, they're always on eggshells because he flies off the handle all the time. Do you know the law will never say thank you? It will never say you're welcome. You know what, Brother Gary? It will never say good job. Well done. Hey, congratulations. Oh, it'll never give you a popper, brother. It'll never do that for you. 
But I'll tell you what, you mess up one time, it'll be there to put his bony finger in your face and get on your case, buddy. Because why? Because that's what it was designed to do. But when we look at the scripture and it says, you are no longer under the law. If the law tries to put its bony finger in my face, man, I want to get out of pocket knife or something. I'm, that finger is going to have to go, friends. It's just going to have to go. I'm being a little facetious. Please bear with me here. But I'm going to remind, no, 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 no. I'm under grace. It's a covenant by faith with my father. I have access to my daddy. I have access to the throne. I have access to Jesus. I can live life and I can see good days. I love this in Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. And I, on purpose, put it in the message paraphrase. The message is a Bible. It's not technically a translation, but it's a paraphrase. But it is a Bible version. Eugene Peterson, who's went on to be with the Lord, wrote it many years ago. And I'll tell you what, it's street language talk. It makes it plain. Here's what he says, Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. That famous promise God gave Abraham that he and his children would possess the earth was not given because of something Abraham did or would do. You see, Abraham was not under the Mosaic law. Abraham was before the law. We have a covenant like Abraham. And notice it says it wouldn't be based on something he did or he didn't do. Same thing with us. God just felt like blessing him. It was God's idea. It wasn't Abraham's idea. And it's still God's idea to bless you. Not your idea. It says it was based on God's decision. There it is. To put everything together for him, which Abraham then entered when he believed. That is the same thing as saying putting your faith in. See, you don't find the word faith but two times in the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament, you'll find the word faith just twice. You don't believe me, you go looking. You'll find it twice. But when you see a word like believe, it's kind of synonymous with the word faith. So it says, if those who get what God gives them only get it by doing everything they are told to do and filling out all the right forms properly signed. Listen, I like that because that's a little sarcasm there. But you know what? We're used to filling out forms, aren't we? We're used to filling out forms and turning them in and then having somebody look across the counter and say, uh, you missed this one. You didn't do this right. You misunderstood the question. Why'd you leave this one blank? He's saying here, and filling out all the right forms properly signed, that eliminates personal trust completely and turns the promise into an ironclad contract. I am not looking for a contract with daddy. This is an attorney office right here. If I need a contract, I'll go down the hallway, friends. I have a covenant with Papa. It's greater than a contract. See, contracts don't require faith. They just require a signature. That's all. Again, trust is another word for faith. It eliminates faith completely when you just sign a contract. And he goes on to say, that's not a holy promise. That's a business deal. A contract is a business deal. A contract drawn up by a hard-nosed lawyer and with plenty of fine print only makes sure that you will never be able to collect. Don't you hate fine print? Because it always puts you on the losing end, it seems like, doesn't it? You think, I'm going to get this replaced under warranty, and you find out, oh man, turns out they don't cover that. Fine print. Look at this though. But if there is no contract in the first place, simply a promise, and God's promise at that, then you can't break it. Amen. 
This is God's promise to Jesus. When Jesus hung on the cross, the covenant was cut with his son. His son was the one that was bleeding. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Every time you cut covenant, there would be shedding blood, whether it was an animal or a person. When you cut covenants on wrists or, or whatever it be, that's how you signified covenant. And Jesus was being cut left and right on the cross, perforated and penetrated and speared. Cutting covenant with the Father, not putting us under a contract, an old Mosaic law system. He said, no, this is going to be by covenant of faith and grace. Friends, let me tell you something. Do yourself a favor and throw away that placenta that you've been holding on to. That placenta may have introduced you to life, but now it has no value. It's discarded, period. After a person comes to salvation in Jesus, listen to me carefully. This is the way the Holy Spirit was communicating this to me. After a person comes to salvation in Jesus, we're all there. Okay, now what? Okay. The law actually stops talking to them, but indoctrination and people don't. So those voices that you keep hearing are not necessarily the Holy Spirit. If you're getting put under law, because the law stops talking, the Mosaic law stops talking to believers. The law knows its purpose. It's holy, it's righteous, it's good. The law will never try to usurp authority over Jesus's blood. Why? Why is that? Because Jesus's blood supplanted the law for the believer. So then... What are these voices? Come on, let's be real. We all hear these voices from time to time. That voice that tries to put you under condemnation. That voice that tries to put guilt on you and shame on you. Where is that voice coming from? They are voices of someone who has refused to discard the placenta of the old covenant. They have held on to it. The law is only there to underscore an unbeliever's failures. The law is in place to condemn the self-righteous. The law stops the sinner's mouth from justifying himself. The law's function is to make the unbeliever guilty before God and see his guilt before God. And the law acts as a schoolmaster to bring sinners to Christ. That's what the law does. The law will never tell you, like I said before, Good job, job well done. The law is not the believer's helper. He is not the believer's counselor. The Holy Spirit is our helper and the Holy Spirit is our counselor. The law is not, okay? Galatians chapter three, verses 24 through 26. Wherefore the law was. He's talking to believers here. He's wanting them to see the law, not is. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified, there's that word again, by faith, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So the question, once again, where are these voices of accusation and condemnation coming from? I believe our answer, listen to me, can be found in a verse that somehow when I stumbled upon it last night, 
I had to look at that verse and go, really? I don't remember that verse. But I want you to know that voice that you're hearing, I want you to see where it's coming from, okay? That voice of condemnation, that voice of guilt and shame and trying to put your sin in front of your face. Here's where it comes from. And it comes from Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 45. He said, don't think that I will be the one to accuse you to the Father. You have put your hope in Moses. He's talking to these stubborn Jews. Stubborn to the max. Self-righteous. And he's telling them, listen, I didn't come to condemn you. John 3, 17 says that. For God sent not his son in the world to condemn the world, but through him the world would be saved. And he says to them, don't think that I'll be the one to accuse you to the Father. You have put your hope in Moses. In other words, what he's saying is you put your hope in the law. You put your hope in the old covenant. You have bypassed the currency of faith. He said, you have put your hope in Moses, yet he is the very one who will accuse you. Isn't that amazing? He's the one that's going to accuse you. Moses did what God told him to do. And I believe Moses did it pretty well. I really do. We're not trying to throw Moses under the bus by any measure. Moses stepped out of line a couple times and it cost him his promised land. He was under an old covenant. He was under a covenant that I'll bless you if you do what's right. I'll curse you if you do what's wrong. Moses understood that. But we're under a different covenant. Curses do not come upon the people of God. Why? Galatians 3.13, Christ became a curse for us. For cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree, the same tree that made our water sweet. Took away our curse. Our hope is in the one that will never, ever accuse us before the Father, according to that scripture. Our hope is in the glory of God. And how was that hope and glory revealed to us? It was when we were justified through faith. It was then that we experienced peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Friends, the wonderful truths that I believe we can take home from the message today are these. The placenta or the old covenant, which once nourished 600 and 13 Jewish laws, including the Ten Commandments, through the umbilical cord of performance has been discarded and it has been rendered obsolete. It has been supplanted by Jesus' blood. There are no life-threatening complications in Christ. For when we were born again, the sinful nature was extracted. There was no portion of it left behind. We do not have a retained sinful nature. Our spirit man is not under construction. He is a finished work. Only the decor of our minds is being transformed. How are we being transformed? By reminders such as this. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster for ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. The chief cornerstone that has been laid in our hearts is Jesus Christ. The new covenant never deteriorates, never loses its authorities. It is never unseated and it has an eternal tenure. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Through Christ, 
through Christ and faith in Christ, we have access to the Father by one Spirit. That means we can approach life by faith through the new covenant lens of grace. How and when did all of this take place, you say? Friends, I can't speak for you, but it is settled in my heart. It was when Jesus' blood supplanted the law. Amen. Well, Daddy, I want to just thank you and praise you for this wonderful opportunity just to take the word and stuff it, not in just the heart of this church, but in the heart of the world. I want to thank you, Father. People are getting free. This message has not been preached for so many years, Daddy. I want to thank you for the people that you're raising up right now with voices that are speaking truth, voices that are speaking freedom and rest in our spirits, voices that are speaking good things. And I want to thank you, Father, that we have, through the message of grace, through the gospel of grace, we have let go of that ancient placenta called the Old Covenant. We are not attached to that. We are attached to Christ. And thank you, Father, in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. I want to thank you, Father, that I can approach the throne of grace where I find mercy and grace to help me in my time of need. I want to thank you that I can come like one full of life because I know I have a Father that Jesus says, I won't condemn you in front of daddy, okay? Moses might still do that, but I will not condemn you in front of my father. Why? <laughs> so simple. Because you have put your faith in the one that hung on a tree, and from me flows the sweetness of the new covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.